So I'm not going to be one of those people who fills up your time every week with the saga of a deceased relative, but I just want to use this space to thank so many people for their notes, their DMs, their emails in regards to the recent passing of my beloved father, Stanley Perlman. It's been a truly devastating time for my family, but the overwhelming compassion has made the lows mm, a little bit less low. So on behalf of my wife and my kids and my mom and my brother, thank you, thank you, thank you, and happy holidays. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Dante Stewart, the former Clemson football player who now writes for a bunch of places and is the author of a riveting memoir, Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle. This is episode number 344. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and face looks like a bowl of cereal that's been left in the sun for too long. All right, Dante. All right, I have to give a immediate criticism of you, which is you're the author of a memoir, Shouting in the Fire, and you're doing a podcast, and we're looking at each other, and you don't have your books prominently displayed. You don't have the cover forward-facing over your shoulder. You don't have the, oh, is that my book back there? I didn't notice that there are seven copies facing you and staring you down. You don't have any of that. Super amateur, man. Where's the professionalism? What is going going on here? (laughs) Well, well, the story there is every book I was given by my publisher, I gave it away. I I either sent it or gave it or don't like, like just gave it to people um, in that process of like promoting a book. It was like that one, the one month that they don't tell you about, like you get a good one month, one and a half months. Uh, in order to kind of like promote your book. And I'm pretty much like I, I, people on the street everywhere. I'm like, hey, bro, like a dude out the back of this car, like with mixtape. Like I was like, yo, hey, here go my book. So literally, I absolutely have no copies of my book, but I have everybody's book in this house. Like there's so many, it's like a little miniature library. I have to say, I do the same thing. I end up giving away. So the publisher will send you whatever, 20 copies or 40 copies within a year. Like I've written 10 books and I know there are three of them. I have zero copies of in my house. Wow. Cause what are you going to do when someone comes along and they're like, Oh, like I run a charity for so-and-so will you donate a signed book or some, someone right. says, Oh, I love your book and blah, blah, blah. Like what are you supposed to do? Facts. I, I need to get more copies of my book. I need to do that actually. And what's crazy is like, usually uh, I have a little thing that I do. So usually when somebody comes over to my house for the first time, whether they are, doing work at the house, around the house, or they come to visit the house as friends or acquaintances, I always let them come to my office and take a book with with them. Uh, Whether it's like something, I ask them like, hey, are you into like religion or are you into like politics? Are you into sports? Are you into like fiction, photography? I let them grab a book. Uh, And so over time, I ain't got none. I feel like basically what you're telling me is if you're a plumber or electrician or a mover, or the mailman, and you want a free book, make sure Dante's in your universe. Come to my crew. I got you. So again, you're the author of Shouting in the Fire, and it's a memoir. It sort of dates back in a way to 2016 when you and your family, you attend a white evangelical church in Augusta, Georgia. Yeah. And it's during the rise of Trumpism and the MAGA movement. 
you're basically this guy who loves God and loves Jesus and you love church and you love the spirit of church. And you start looking around and there's something happening to the church. And I ask you, Dante, what was happening to the church? I think what was happening at that moment is what was already happening already was an unraveling began to take place or continue to take place or continue to evolve. What's interesting is that like many people, the question they first asked me is like, how in the world did you end up there? And I always tell them that it, it's through like college football. When I played at Clemson, the people who have access to us as young black players usually come from these white church spaces through like preaching at chapel services and things like that. They're cool. They're nice. We oftentimes come from like religious backgrounds and, you know, we begin to like hang out and things like that. And so over the years, I began to, you know, hang out more in like white spaces and things like that. And so then in 2016, we ended up in this white Southern Baptist Church in Augusta, Georgia. And what happened was Donald Trump allowed many of these white people to hold their kind of whiteness without any shame, with any regard to what other people feel about it. We'll hold it with a sort of type arrogance. We'll hold it with a, I would even suggest a sort of kind of violence because it was abusive and it was demeaning uh, to so many of us who at that moment at least wanted to imagine that like, yo, black people and white people and all people can get together and try and make something happen, try and imagine something better. But sadly, that was all under the kind of gaze and the power of whiteness. And it let me know that like, I don't believe that it can happen. I don't believe unity under the banner of what we have known in America as whiteness and, and white people's history and way, you know, even movements for justice and diversity and equity how oftentimes many of them move at the pace of white people's feelings. Uh, many of it moves at the pace of uh, white people's kind of imagination. Many of it moves at the pace of white people's timetable. And too often, those of us who walk into this space where we are already kind of marginalized in this space and and, and not counted as being worth full uh, citizenship as Carol Anderson so wonderfully writes in uh, White Rage, many times people just, you know, they disregard us and gaslight us and then blame us until it's ultimately to the point where you can't even exist in that space in any realm of possibility. And I kind of got to that space. Like I would never probably find myself uh, at a white church the way we were back then. I want to say one thing I love about your book comes from dual experiences you've had, which is first, you're this guy and you're going to church and then you see the way white society actually views you when this wedge is thrown in, which is Trump. And it gives white conservative churchgoers a chance to really show who they maybe are. And then you also play college football at Clemson. You wrote a freaking great essay in 2020 called Dear White Clemson Fan. And I just want to say you wrote, as a former Clemson student athlete, because you were defensive back at Clemson, the comments I see made on something as simple as a Black Lives Matter sticker on the helmet are atrocious and not to mention incredibly racist. It's so interesting that so many of you want black bodies to perform well for you. As one white Clemson fan recently put it, Saturday is my time. But when it comes to those black bodies standing in solidarity with other black bodies, then somehow it's a distraction. For some reason, you don't have a problem with young black athletes using their platforms for military appreciation game or breast cancer awareness month. I'm trying to put my finger on what that problem is. Hmm. It is not the platform you don't like. I think I can assume many of you praised Tim Tebow when he kneeled in prayer or Jonathan Isaac when he didn't kneel when others did, but you don't like them using their platforms that they earned to fight for black lives as a way of telling our story, remembering our lynch and holding both America, its people and our university accountable. Our bodies forcing you to see the ways in which our black bodies have been forgotten, marginalized, abused and oppressed. 
both on and off the field, in the classroom and in the community. It's one thing to be ignorant. It's another thing to be arrogant. And it's quite another thing to be both at the same time. So you have to reckon with the white power structure of the church. And then you also have to reckon with the white power structure of college football, and in particular, Southern college football, of white coaches coming into the homes of dozens of young black men across America, knocking on the doors, telling their mom, oh, that, what are you making? That smells great. I'm going to treat your son just like I'm his daddy, blah, 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 blah. If he comes to Clemson, it's a family. And then voting against every single thing that would help those families is one of the great insanities of this universe that we live in. And I feel like it, I don't mean to just preach, but it powers your book in many real ways. Mm, man, thank you. Thank you. And and that's actually, man, wow. I'm, that, 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 whew, I'm glad you read that because that I, I remember the night that I wrote that piece. I actually, it was actually, I think might've been before a game. I don't know the date on it or not. It was September 12th, 2020. You remember when all like these colleges started put Black Lives Matter on the field and sure. put it on the helmet. And on my Facebook, I'm still connected to a lot of like Clemson fans. And like little by little, I began to like delete, 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 because they began to get like atrocious. Like their comments were, it's one thing, you know, to to talk about someone and things like that. But it's quite another thing for your comments to turn into like a form of hatred. The comments in response to those stickers, something simply as a sticker went far beyond like, all right, this is my personal opinion about whatever's going on to like, we really turning like into like, you know, 1950s, 1960s you know, don't want you to like be at our school. You know, if you don't like this country, then leave type of mentality. I was thinking that day, I was like, dang, bro, I can't even like pitch this essay to nobody. So let me like write this joint on my phone. So like, I actually wrote it on my phone as a Facebook post first. Wow. And, and like people resonated with it on, on Facebook. And I was like, you know what, man, let me, let me, let me throw that joint on my website, bro. So I threw it. I actually threw that thing on my website and just like wrote something. Up. It's probably terribly edited. I'm not a good at line editor or whatnot, but I do remember that. Like I tried to communicate like the way we actually feel. Cause I think, that a lot of people, when they think about like football players, I really do feel like a lot of them think that we're supposed to just not be concerned about like the outside world outside of the, the stadium, you know, or many athletes for that matter. You take Angel Reese or you take somebody like Shakara Richardson or, or whoever, whoever is an outspoken athlete about what they go through in their lived experience. Many times like people believe that like, yo, only white American athletes have just causes. When in fact, like if there's a cause that represent a place of pain for someone else and you do whatever you can to fix it and bring, illuminate it and bring light to it, like I wrote about with Breast Cancer Awareness and Military Appreciation, then there should be no problem in expanding the idea of like who gets to be seen when, where, and how much. And I'm like, a lot of people don't hear from football players. You know, a lot of people don't think that like we should be able to communicate or articulate, you know, our ideas. Or if we are, then they do get somebody like Jonathan Isaac to say like, OK, here's the black guy who's playing basketball for the Orlando Magic. He says that he's not kneeling in protest. And therefore, here comes a brilliant black man. Just so happens that this black, this quote unquote brilliant black man uh, is a contrarian to what thousands of black people are saying. I think, man, like. Yeah, college sports, bro. Even with Dion, bro, like I could go on a whole tangent on Dion. Like the the response to Dion today is, I think, very much rooted in 
this idea of the white racist college sports scenes and the ways in which like the white coach is a symbol of like the way things should be going. So Dion comes in, people are like, okay, basically you can be cool and outspoken and confident on the HBCU level around black people. But when you transpire into our spot, our place, quote unquote, then we don't like that because you don't represent who we are. And I think this is bound to you know, college sports because college sports is just a microcosm of the macro story of America. I have mixed feelings on Deion Sanders. It's a great topic. I feel like as a white journalist, you have to ask yourself, why do I feel this way? And what is bringing me this? My thing with Deion Sanders truly is, so I wrote Walter Payton's biography years ago. Jackson State is one of my favorite colleges in America. I root for Jackson State. I could not love Jackson State more than I love Jackson State. And I did not love the way Dion sort of, I am swack. Oh, by the way, I'm taking all your best players and your coaches and really kind of your hope. And I understand the argument, which is fair, is nobody says when Lane Kiffin leaves Florida Atlantic to go to Ole Miss. Nobody says it when someone, like, they all do it. And I do think it's a fair point. Mm -hmm. We are all angry about it when the black guy does it. But why aren't we getting all upset when Lane Kiffin or Dabo Swinney or whoever does it? And I think that's actually a pretty interesting and fair argument to make. It's a fair criticism to say, like, yo, Dion came into, you know, some place like Jackson State, you know, and then left the way he did. I think that's worthy criticism. I think people should be able to, like, criticize someone based on their own personal feeling, because especially for those black people in Jackson State, you know, whatever kind of head headbutting they did during that moment, I think one has to hold intention like they can feel what they feel. Dion must feel what he's feel and right. the outside world that watches can feel what they feel. And we find a way how to navigate all those different like feelings, given the context and things like that. But I also do think it's legit that like, yo, that the standard in which like black athletes are held to or black people in general are held to in this country, especially when it comes to like this idea of being loud or quiet, this idea of being moral or immoral, this idea of being upstanding or not upstanding. Like, like when we talk about like race and power and socialization in America, standards are oftentimes racialized, which because our standards in this country and our ideas about who we are and what we are and where we're from oftentimes racialized and in and in 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 this society places are oftentimes demarcated based on who lives in what place and therefore people don't even interact so take for example book banning and things like that you know many white kids in this country could go a whole educational journey without ever actually truly legitimately learning the greatness of someone like Bo Jackson or the greatness of someone like uh, Sweetness and things like that. They think that, okay, you know, one sort of athlete represents the totality of the beauty and the magic of what these people have meant to a sport and things like that. So take, for example, like book banning, like they could go their whole time and not know, you know, who we are or what we prioritize, where we come from, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I a million percent agree with you. I thought of something when you were talking, I just want to bring it up real quick. When I was working on my Bo Jackson book, Bo Jackson, when he was at Auburn, he had a teammate named Lionel Little Train James, who was his halfback. Hmm. And I was interviewing Lionel James, and he has since passed, but I was interviewing, played in the NFL later on for a bunch of years. And he told me he had this moment. They played a game against Florida. This is in the SEC back in the 80s. And Lionel James broke like four out of the five fingers on one hand. Hmm. And he's sitting there, and his fingers are broken, and they're all swollen, and he's in pain. And he's looking around at the... 60,000 people, and he finds himself wondering, or at least wondering in hindsight, would any of these people let me date their daughter? Would any of these people 
want me to use their bathroom? Would any of these people want me to come in their house and sit down for dinner if I were just a black kid from Georgia and not the running back for Auburn University? Mm. And I actually think, and you write about this, every black college football player, and maybe every college football player, period, should be warned by someone, just so you know, you are a piece of meat. Just so you know, you are a piece of meat. You played at Clemson. Did your teammates, were you guys aware at the time that you were pieces of meat? I think it goes beyond just simply being a piece of, piece of meat and more so being a piece of property. A piece of meat is like something to be enjoyed. It's something just like for consumption, but like a piece of property is about power. And I think these people, I think we're aware of the ways in which like college football in general and the ecosystem that has been formed that is college sports in particular believes that athletes are owned. Think, for example, like with NIL, the way things have been constructed is like at every point over the last years prior to NIL, athletes have been, and I'm talking about black, white, Hispanic, Asian, gay, straight, everybody, you know, has been systematically disempowered by the individual universities and the NCAA in general. And the way the system has been set up is that like, yo, you're only here because we want you here. And while you're here, we make the rules for the way you exist. And that spills over into the fan base because it's almost like you could think about your college as like a home. That like Saturdays is like being in a home, like the coaches, quote unquote, the parental figure and the fans are, quote unquote, the, the people around you, like your uncles and aunts or like your neighborhood. And the way that they see this kind of hierarchical power structure between player and coach relate to one another, that informs how they relate to us. Because they're watching that and they're being socialized, not directly, but they're being socialized indirectly. And even think about the ways that like rewards and punishments in college football, you know, say someone get in trouble and somebody else get in trouble or somebody wants to do something here or somebody wants to do something there. And the ways in which like rewards and punishments are dwelt, like divvied out or it's things like that. Like this all informs like this college fan base that believe that like we're more than a piece of meat for consumption, like we're property to be owned and that like they can do and say whatever they want to uh, to us. They can they can talk about us any type of way online or they can mess with us when we're like in public or say things like that. They're like they they own you the whole time. We're aware of this, but we're also we, we love the game and we love ball. And so we there to like play. And oftentimes, you know, the environment doesn't lend itself to like outside noise. You become more aware of what you were in once you leave than when you're there as a college football player. You just kind of you, you're trying to play. You're trying to make it to the league. You league minded. You kind of focus. And then once you leave, you kind of see like, yeah, Lee, bro, that's kind of like. But it kind of racist, bro. Like, you know, they 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 kind of weird, bro. Like they they on the energy, like they actually believe that they like own us. And I don't think it's cool. My favorite saying that you never would hear a black person say to a white person, but you hear a white person say to black people all the time is he's like a son to me. Like it's the most patriarchal, creepy. Name one time ever you've heard a black adult say to a white kid, he's like a son to me. It is the most like controlling without controlling. Yeah. thing a white older coach could say to a younger black player and again would you ever let this kid marry your daughter answer 95 percent, probably no oh facts oh facts bro oh man oh man and even if we do say 
like you're a son to me. So say like Dion makes that comment because he says that's about Travis Hunter all the time. Yep. Like this is oftentimes indexed by like real legitimate like relationship. And we mean yes. two totally different things. Yes. Like like if you if you're a son to me, I oftentimes know that like, yo, like if a, if a white coach say like this person is a son of them, bro, that joint end once like it, it oftentimes end once you over with. Like when, yeah. once you done, bro, you done. Once you transfer to uh, whatever, UCLA, Facts. the father-son relationship mysteriously Facts. evaporates. Facts. And I, I actually will commend Coach Sweeney on this, that even when I like left and transferred and came back and finished up my degree um, at Clemson after I was done with football and leaving in the years since then, me and Coach Sweeney has, have kept in touch very frequently. You know, anytime I text and things like that, Coach Sweeney texts back, we like talk on the phone and things like that. So I don't even know if I've ever heard Coach Sweeney refer to like a kid as like, yo, this kid is like a son to me. Yeah. Um, as much as like Coach Sweeney maintains that like, yo, co- that Nick Saban type joint, that like head coach, player, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I will commend Coach Sweeney that he's, man, he's a, in that regard, Coach Sweeney has been a, a really good dude in that regard, man, to, to keep up with the guys and, and love on them and create space for, you know, guys to come back and, and be a part of the program and be a part of the organization in ways that maybe if you were somewhere else, it might not have been that way. And, and of course, as people are saying right now, you know, the talk of the town is like, you know, that represents some limitation, you know, for when it comes to like where Clemson is right now and things like that. But at the end of the day, bro, a lot of us, once we get done with the game, bro, it's a very, very immensely hard transition emotionally, psychologically. Most guys deal with undiagnosed depression and there's things like that once they leave really on college level and you're so blessed to make it pro. We struggle emotionally and mentally. It's a very, very hard thing to transition from. And if a coach has it in his heart to be able to say like, yo, I mean, you got dudes that's like NFL stars to dudes that's like former walk-ons that didn't play a down, you know, that like are there at Clemson, you know, in that space, et cetera, et cetera. And I got, I definitely got to commend Coach Sweeney on that. I just want you to know, Dante, you've always been like a father to me. <laughs> That's funny. Is that cool? Is that okay? No. <laughs> you got your BA in sociology from Clemson University. You have a master's from Emory. And I'm kind of fascinated. Like you wrote this book that blew up and like was kind of all over the place. And it's a memoir. And a lot of people do not make their first books memoirs. They think, oh, I got to go through this process. How did you even go about getting a book deal as a sort of unknown at the time, former college football player, blah, 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 essayist? How did that happen? It really happened, man, through like DMs and things like that, bro. Like I am a master DMer. I slide in DMs like all the time. And, and it's actually for a few reasons. Number one, because that's just who I am. Like I love to connect with people. I love people. I just love, like if anyone follows me and I dig what they do and things like that, or any way I'm inspired by what they do. Like I would love, I, I just love to connect. It's just part of like how God made me. The second piece of that is that like, I want to work, you know, where I'm from, from St. Matthew, South Carolina, bro, like not much works for us. You know, your margin to do a great thing well is very thin. And when it's your time, then you got to do everything you possibly can to like make good on it. So like for me to this day, I still do this to this day. Like, even though I may not have things that's like published just because like, say I write an essay and I send it to an editor and, and they like mess with it or whatnot, even if it's not published, like, like, because like ed- editors, and you, I'm sure you know this, like you've been in the game for so long. Like it's always based on like timing. Like if an editor has time to take a look at a piece, you know, if they, you know, have time to say like, okay, 
you know, I like what you're doing. I like what this piece is doing. I can see where it can go. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always writing essays and I'm always just like working on things. Like I just wrote a piece on Deion Sanders uh, in Colorado and I sent it to my editor over at Anscape. Like sometimes things don't publish and they they just ain't got no time. But like, if you know anything about me, Dante gonna have something up in your DM or he gonna have something up in your email just cause that's just like who I am. And so like much of my like, first book deal came out of that too. It's like, I was just continuing to write essays, um, continuing to like write things. And, and it just so happened that like one of my friends gave me a call and was like, yo, you ever thought about like writing a book and things like that? And I was like, nah, like not really. At that time I was just like writing devotionals, you know, as a minister, Mm -hmm. I had my first devotional self-publishing on my website in December of 2019. And then I met with a agent around like February of like 2020, we had liked each other at the time. And uh, then I kind of went to work and a part of like, if I could do it all over again, I would definitely do things differently. I would definitely like take my time a little bit more. I would be careful about like the, the way I entrust myself to people. In 2020, one of the unspoken things is that like a lot of people got like black writers during that moment. We, we were worthy of deals and we should have been had all this stuff. But it's also true that I think like a lot of people saw it as a opportunity. 2020 was like the year of the black writer. And I feel like a lot of people saw the opportunity of getting black writers signed, but they had no intention of actually turning our writing into careers. Right. And for me, man, being a football player, dog, I'm like, bro, I'm career minded. Like I'm thinking long game. Like I'm thinking like, like I'm already going to work. I'm going to work real hard at the craft. So I'm always be reading books on craft and things like that. I'm always be connecting with people just because it's just a part of like, you know, being a football player and networking with people. Um, But I think the big thing was like one of the mistakes I made is that like I may have entrusted myself to people early who didn't see like a long game of where I could go in mind. And thankfully it happened so early to where I could like really recover. It just wasn't a situation that had like my career in mind. In March and April of 2020, I was working on the book proposal, worked on it for like two or three weeks. My next book proposal that I'm going out right now is literally taking me like six months to write. Six <laughs> months. Is that good or bad? I don't know. My least favorite part of every <laughs> book is the book proposal process. So to me, it sounds oh, like yeah. pure torture. Yeah. It's been tough because my agent, she's very, very good at what she does. And she knows writing. She knows the industry. And she's like any good coach. She's like getting the best out of me. Just like my editor at ESPN, Scott, like he's making me believe that like I'm a really good writer. And he's like, we're working on a piece right now about the decade between me quitting football in 2013 and then in 2023, me getting diagnosed with depressive disorder, major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder and CPTSD. And we wrote an essay on like what football gives us and takes away and beginnings and endings and regret and reinvention. And it's a football piece. And like, they're like asking me all types of questions and nitty gritty. And like, I mean, they bringing out the best in me. And I think like early on when I got my first book deal, things was like very quick and things like that. And I feel like that was kind of a mistake. And I'm grateful that it happened because like, you know, at 29, being able to be agented, writing a book and writing for like people like the New York Times and the Washington Post. I mean, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a little blessing. Um, so I'm grateful for, for for that time. And I'm like, yo, the way it happened was I slid in them DMs and I was like persistent in my keeping up with people, persistent in my work, persistent in my love of the craft. 
And I just, just sheer flat out like writing. I, it's a thing that has worked for me. And like, I want to make it work because it's my foot. It's now my football. It's my football field. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who recently decided she wants to be a sociology minor. To quote the great New Jersey general safety, Gary Barbaro, sociology is the key to an enlightened society. I'm pretty sure Gary Barbaro never said that. You're right, but I bet he shops at royalretros.com to buy old generals jerseys, hats, and t-shirts. I guess. But what does that have to do with you being a sociology minor? Oh, to be so uneducated. Is there a line between being persistent in DMs and annoying in DMs? Oh, 100%. You really got to be wise about boundaries. Like, you got to understand boundaries. Because I feel like like a writer say they'll hear that, and then now they better go send like 20 DMs, right? You just got to be wise about boundaries and people's time. One of my rules is this. Before I ever have an ass, like a legitimate ass, like I want to already have a body of work that I got, have something that I really I'm already working on. That's like that, like one of my things as a writer is whatever I'm working with an editor, clean first draft. Shout out to my boy, Jason Reynolds. There's something he's taught me. I want to have as clean first draft as I possibly can. And then I personally want to turn around things within like 24, 48 hours. If I can't, now I got two kids, I can't do that no more. But I want to turn around now within like three days. Give me two and a half, three days to kind of hunker down, you know, get my TME, focus up, you know, and, and then get to work. So it's like, I already had that done, things like that. And so like, if I'm going to sign in the editor's DM, I'm just going to be like, yo, what's up? Like, you know, and I'm actually legitimately know their work. I'm going to probably be following them for a long time. I'm probably going to be checking out things they're doing, reading things, reading up on things they're doing. And then when I sign in their DM, it's more so like, yo, like, you know, it's great to be connected with you. And, you know, if it ever comes a day where we're able to work together, I would love that. But more than anything, I would just love to be in your corner. We'd love to be connected and things like that. If it's somebody who's a writer, who's a writer that I admire, I'm probably never, ever making the ask. Like until it's like solidified that like, if I do make an ass of you, you are sure that you can say no without that ever changing my relationship with you based on the way I relate to you. Like I want a relationship to where like, if I ever get to the point where I make an ass and like one, like I've had to make ass of like writerly friends, like say with like getting endorsements or like other little ass or things like that, where it's like, y'all wrote up this essay. I don't really got a contact. Could you look at this if you got time? If you think something of it and you think it's worth anything, you know, just send it to somebody that, you know, if you like it, you know, if you ever get time to get to it, whatever, you know, and things like that. But like, I think there's a part of like respecting people DMs and being wise about it so that like you don't seem like overly thirsty. Um, I'll tell you a story, bro. You ever heard of E.T. the hip hop preacher? I don't think so. So E.T. the hip hop preacher is a motivational speaker, an amazing, amazing human being. Well, when I was in Clemson, I came out with this video in 2013 of like me doing this joint called The Vision. It's like this motivational video. It's actually still on YouTube to this day. Okay. Uh, and I cringe uh, even looking at that joint. So E.T., man, I hit E.T. up and like, you know, I sent E.T. the video. Right. And this is in college. I'm like 18, 19 years old. And I can't blame myself. I can't fault myself back then. But then, like, I was like sending the, the vision video to everybody and it worked. Man, it got to the point where like I was on the bus. 
one morning, I'll never forget this, bro. I was on a bus at Clemson one morning, bro. And then somebody asked me, if, like, yo, that was who I if you was Dante. And I was like, man, I was decent as a walk-on. I was playing, but like it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't like Todd or Sammy or Newt or anybody or anybody like that, or, or Andre or or Cody or, or or Gilly or anybody like that. Like, you know, I was a walk-on, decent walk-on who, who could play. But then like somebody recognized me on the bus and like it worked. And so then I ended up getting hooked up with like E.T. And E.T. ended up like retweeting and things like that. And he followed me and I slid in his DM. I'm like, bro, like, I, I mean, I probably sent this man like got to be like 40, 50 DMs, bro. Like, I don't know what it was like. It was just so much. And I think like that's just what part of like youthful hunger, which Definitely. is actually really good. If you're young and you're hungry like that, that can be really good. You just got to it just got to turn into like wisdom, the wisdom of experience to be able to like, just no boundaries. Like if you're going to sign in somebody DM, let it be about like checking in with them first. And just like saying, you want to keep up with them and just stay connected rather than just like, you know, I'm going to ask you something in two weeks. I received a DM the other day from someone who gave my number to someone and it was a young writer. And he was like, Hey Jeff, I just want to say, uh, whatever. First of all, you know, I really loved your so-and-so book and blah, blah, blah. And you and I really think alike. And I really think it'd be great if we could hang out some time and talk and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, you're going too fast here. Thanks. First DM has to be, hey, I just wanted to reach out and say I'm a big admirer of your work. Thanks. Would it be okay if I showed you a something I wrote? Sure. Blah, blah, blah. You build her, you got to build a relationship before you ask someone to go for muffins. Oh, bro. Heck yeah, bro. Like, And you got to... And you got to allow people an opportunity to say no. I've, I feel like I've been blessed to have some really good friends in the writerly world yeah. and not just the writerly world, but in the religious world, not just in like the religious world, but also like in just in general, like, you know, just being a trying to be a good dude to people. You know, one thing I noticed just about like these relationships that I've been able to build, whether they knew or whether they're long term, I would rather be a, a dependable presence for someone else rather than somebody that's just like a hungry dude mm -hmm. who, who just wants to grind, which it is like if I'm going to be real, like if I can step in my Dion bag, like I don't think there's a 31 year old writer that's 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 like working as hard as I am. Like, that's just the football in me. It's like, nobody ain't working harder than me. Nobody ain't doing what I'm doing. Like, no, like, there's just a part of the football in me. But then also, there's a part where you got to be able to turn it off, too, and be like, yo, like, th there's a fine line between hunger and desperation. Yep. And it's, it's oftentimes hard to understand where that line happens, especially when you come from a marginalized environment mm -hmm. and things oftentimes just don't work for you. And you feel as if like you got to grab bag everything and you got to hold everything with a, with a closed fist and you got to make sure that you don't lose what little you do have. You feel as if everything is unstable and unfragile. I was thinking about like this for a long time, you know, and even to this day, like I have a part of that that's still like in the foreground or even in the back of my mind that like, yo, whatever this is, and I've built, you know, and other people have helped me build. And by God's grace, God has built in my own life in a year's time, it'll all be gone. So I still think like that this like internal clock is ticking, but like, you know, people can better deal with hungry people than desperate people. Definitely. When you're hungry, people like that. It's yeah. just that like, you got to give people time to get to know you. Right. But when you're desperate, like that oftentimes push people away because they understand, people know, people can know that when the net, when the moment comes to where you can find someone or something better, 
you will leave that or you will do whatever you can do just to make a name for yourself. And bro, I'm 31. I've been doing this thing since 29, 28 years old. I've had a people who are like 10, 15 years older than me, right? Who would see from the outside looking in whatever I've been able to do and not realize that like whatever I've been able to do in this writer world is more times whatever people see is based on like somebody else seeing something in me and at least giving me a shot. Like it's like football, bro. <laughs> I could go out there and practice my crap all I want. But if coach don't call my name, bro, it's all for nil, you know? So it's like, ain't nothing going to happen. So like I've had people who see this and whatever has been built. And I, I'll never forget, bro, a situation happened with me, bro. And like, it made me real angry. Not even kind of angry. It made me angry where a person who was a, another writer was talking to me about like book stuff and book information and things like that. And I shared some things with them about like how like my journey had went and how things had went for me when it came to like money and things like that. Cause they were a black writer. And I just was like, yo, if you be black, you know, I want to do whatever I can to like look out and show some love and, and help out. And this person took that information was like, you know, I know like, first time writers who did this and that. And now granted, bro, I ain't like, it ain't like they threw the bag at me either, bro. It ain't like, like they threw like, like, you, you know, it ain't like, no, I was like a first round draft pick. Like, no, bro, I'm just a dude who was writing, who got a book deal. But this person, you know, took that information and utilized it for their own game. And like, it, it was one of, one of the most explorative like feelings, bro, to be like, yo, like, I don't do this with a lot of people. And and, and like, I, I thought that like you were a good person and a nice person and I entrusted this information with you. But I realized that rather than just being hungry, you wasn't a hungry person. You were a desperate person and you were willing to do whatever you could to get whatever you can. And like for me to this day, like I don't never wish ill will on nobody. It's just that like I'm not going to mess with you anymore. And I think people have to be mindful of that, like. It's cool to be hungry and want to like connect with people and want to be there with people. But it's another thing to be desperate and just trying to like grab bag everything that just makes for terrible writing. Cause you, your writing going to be terrible because you're going to rush everything and you're not going to pay attention to detail. And it makes for being a terrible human being because you don't treat people as if like they're real human beings with real needs, with real things that on their plate. You just only treat them as like pawns in your own show. And I don't think that's cool. Let me ask you a final question. This is important. You are a former football player. You are a man of faith. I'm a former college runner. I don't have much faith. If there is a God, I've been a New York Jet fan for my entire life. We finally had hope this year. God came down and he actually said to me, a Jewish man who wears sandals and a goatee, much like Jesus Christ, he came to me, Dante, and he said, this is the year the New York Jets are going to be good, my son. Enjoy the fruits of your long fandom. Enjoy the fruits, the drying up of your frustrations. We have delivered you Brees Hall. We have delivered you Aaron Rodgers. We have delivered you Garrett Wilson. We have delivered you a top shelf defense. Why, Dante, five plays into the season, did God stab me in the heart? Yes, he did. Why, Dante? Why? Because <laughs> God ain't fair, bro. <laughs> 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 hey, the football guys and hey, the football guys don't take sides, my guy. <laughs> but you know what's crazy about that, bro? Like, 
you know, it's, I, you know what I appreciate about this conversation, bro. A lot of people, man. When I have, I've, I've had multiple conversations with people, bro, just about life in general, and my book and my work. And rarely do people talk to me about sports, right? So, like, you know, it's all it's cool. Like, it's cool talking about like book work and things like that. But like, man, I absolutely love talking about like sports and anything to do with sports and and all all things sports or whatnot, man. I actually was super devastated that Aaron Rodgers got hurt, bro. Cause like I ain't no Jets fan, bro, but I'm I I I I love athletes, bro, with the from the bottom of my heart. Whether they like in college, whether they in high school, whether they in pro, man, I love us because I know what we go through and I know what's at stakes for so much so many of our lives, even when like we're at the top of our career. And man, um, even when we leave, man, one of my now I ain't even meant to go here, but like, man, one of my one of my mentors, one of my best friends, you know, passed away, uh, was killed in a motorcycle accident on September 2nd in 2021, David Patton. Man, I remember, man, just like just watching him transition from the game and just how tough that is. You know, when you hit that, when you hit that wall and your juice don't work no more, bro, and, you, and, you, and your body just don't heal the way it should heal. It don't do what it do no more. And then, you know, you kind of had that, that moment where you're like, yeah, I'm done. And and like I feel for Aaron Rodgers because like and and even Jets fans because it's like yo like it was the moment it was the time everything worked out the stars aligned God was good the angels came down you know it's all lost in some regard it's all lost it's over. it's gone it's gone bro I I mean I, yeah I I feel that too because like imagine if Shadur got hurt imagine if I was about to say Joe Burrow but Joe Burrow had a rough had a rough had just was like a rough start. Or say like a Lamar get hurt or, or any quarterback for that regard, any leader. You know, you wait, know? wait, wait, wait. I have to interrupt you. I don't think yeah. you understand in this regard. I actually don't. And here's what I want to say to you. Okay. I literally am 51 years old. I started rooting for the Jets when I was six. Okay. Wow. I rooted for the, I started rooting for the Jets because my brother at age eight said, I'm going to be a giant fan. And I said, all right, I'll be a Jet fan. My brother would not recognize a single giant where they'd walk in front of his face and say, I play for the Giants. He wouldn't know who they are. I got wow. stuck with this sad shit franchise. Okay. I've never had a Super Bowl in my lifetime. The best quarterbacks on the Jets in my lifetime are Vinny Testaverde and Ken O'Brien. Ken O'Brien, you've certainly never heard of. It's preposterous. This isn't just like this isn't just like Lamar Jackson getting hurt and Hunley stepping in, and he's a decent quarterback. This was it. And now okay. it is just, it's dead. And I blame God. <laughs> oh man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, brother. But uh, I, yeah, I got I got I got no answer for that one, bro. You know, you never know, but you know, it's football, bro. You know, you just never know, bro. Anything can literally happen in this game, bro. You just never know, bro. Like, like it could be to the place where like, what, what's the quarterback behind Zach Wilson? Yeah. Played terrible last year, right? Trash. Terrible. terrible. I mean, he played garbage. I don't know how, why or how, you know, I don't want to be careful speaking about that because I can't play quarterback. You know, he just didn't play according to the standards that, you know, his coaches or I'm sure himself wanted to play to. Yeah. But does not even know that. I mean, anything literally can happen, bro, with this guy. Like a switch can hit. Sure. And he just like has a Cinderella story. I mean, it's football, bro. Anything is possible, bro. So I so okay, if I could be the preacher, can I put my preacher hat on? Like still yet, hold on, bro. Hold on to your hope, my guy. Hold on to your hope. You know, it's it's cliche, but 
And I, and I definitely don't want to be like Coach Sweeney and throw God in uh, on the Jets franchise. <laughs> you know, like God definitely don't. God is not watching sports. No, right now. God is not watching the Jets. No, but, but but life, but life, life, and human beings, and even God, can take what seems to be the worst thing possible, and can still turn it around for something meaningful. And okay. we've all seen that in our life when it comes to grief when it comes to anxiety, when it comes to anger, those bad things and terrible things that can happen can also break open to something beautiful happening if we have the perspective to try again. And I think the Jets organization, somebody going to have to rally the people. And y'all got a very great coach to do that. He has amazing energy. Yeah. And I think he's going to get the job done. Um, and and y'all going to find y'all bearings. And, 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 and now I think the guys have something legitimate, like legit, like there's, that's an extra motivation, something to play for, for Aaron, you know, a vet who chose to come to your franchise when he didn't have to, who, you know, when he got there, that immediately the building was different, much like Dion, when he went to Colorado, the building changed. Yeah. And, and I think they got that extra motivation. I will say that I hope God turns things around uh, for y'all up there in New York. <laughs> I appreciate that. And uh, Dante, seriously, thank you so much. For doing this uh the book is great your writing is great i love your outlook thank you so much for doing this i appreciate it oh man it's been a blessing thank you for having me on my guy i want to thank today's guest dante stewart for joining me on two writers singing yang you can follow dante on twitter at stewart dante c and visit his website at dantecstewart.com if you have a chance and enjoy two writers singing yang please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review i'd be really appreciative Music is by the sizzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.